Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Welcome to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Naveen Krishnamurti. Naveen runs Reva Solutions in the Washington, D.C. area. Naveen, introduce yourself. Tell us a little about you. Uh, sure. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, myself, Naveen Krishnamurti, CEO of Reva Solutions, local product to the D.C. metropolitan area. Grew up in this area, worked for a couple larges like CACI and Booz Allen, uh, and then went into the Silicon Valley during the dot-com era. And then kind of morphed over into uh, the government world, currently running a company of up to uh, close to 500 employees across the country, doing some pretty cool things in IT with some really important missions for the federal government. And, um, you know, honestly, uh, you know, my biggest passions are just to travel and spend some time with my kids. Oh, that's great. That's great. And you're the original founder. I am. I am. I started the company 12 Twelve and a half years ago, so John, we're about to become a teenager. Well, so you're you're in those rebellious years now. That's uh, right. Yeah, right, we'll go against the grade now. Time to ask some hard questions. <laughs> and you're just protesting everything out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, protest is a bad word in the government, so maybe. Yeah, not. you're right. You don't protest. You're challenging everything. Out <laughs> that's of right. That's right. Okay, good. That's good. Uh, so I, I'm curious when uh, in the original um, idea for the company you know, people have inspirations and they have ideas. Did you have a sense that you could get to 500 people or the revenue that you're at or whatnot as you were starting? Or was it just, let's take it as we go or uh, let's see what we can do in the first year or let's give, let's give this thing a shot? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Business 101, you know, and I got my MBA from Maryland and you know, I did my undergrad there. It's you got to have a business plan and an exit strategy and all those good things. I kind of laugh at some of that because uh, all of the goals that we had, um, we we beat, we beat all of them, which is a good problem and and good opportunity. And and then we had to uh, do it again, where we ended up beating them again. Um, inspirational wise, um, it wasn't really. I, I have this saying. I, I'm not inspired by money and the CFO is usually kind of somewhere in the, you know, somewhere out there cursing at me. And, it, you know, and it's because uh, it was really a simple formula of working for in private and public, large and small. I just said, what if you built a government contracting company that did cool things and was like a great place to work? And it was as and that was as like that. non-existent. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know, that would be, I think like I could build something like that. And I think that it would be something that uh, would be a little bit fresh, you know, coming from my dot-com, you know, background, a little bit startup, you know, kind of flip-flops and ping-pongs and all that good stuff. And I think that I just try to infuse my background into that concept. And um, that DNA is actually what creates us succeeding our goals, not 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 really any uh, formal business plan that was written. Yeah, and, and CFOs like to just say it's gross revenue or net profit or some sort, sort of financial metric. And after a while, they get tiresome. Yeah. So how then do you, separate from your CFO, we'll leave him out of here. We didn't invite him for, for a reason. Um, <laughs> how do you measure or define scale then if it's not 
revenue based or or is it partially revenue based? I think it is revenue based. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about scale is equating it to being a small business that's growing into a large business, right? Because I think like you could look at a large company and you know, you're going to say year over year growth. This is my goal. We've been around for 30 years, but when you're talking about scaling and going from emerging small to a small to mid-sized to a large, to me, that's the definition of scale because it's not just quantifiable data tied to revenue. It's also looking at aspects of organizational behavior because you have to create things out of new, a department that didn't exist, to implement a system, you have to create a process, you have to build hierarchy. I mean, you're scaling at, at, with so much curveballs being thrown at you all at the same time, and you have to handle the people problem, which is always going to be your biggest challenge. So the definition to scale, how do you quantify what I just threw at you? You know, because getting all of those things to work harmoniously and then equate to improvements in your bottom line, sure, you can do that. But that's that's a bit of a journey that uh, you're going to have to break some eggs in order to get to that final destination. Hmm. That's interesting. So how, how much of your job as CEO is um, daycare for 500 versus crowd surfing and you're the one on the top and they're and they're, uh, they're you're, you're the one going across the crowd surfing? Where, where are you on that metric? or scale with, uh, with your role? Uh, you know, it's changed over time. Um, I think right now, um, I think the, I set the path of vision and strategy for the company, um, less in the tactical weeds, hired people to do that tied to scaling, right. Got to bring in managers, directors, and leadership, uh, leadership with experience to plug gaps, classic saying, want people in the room smarter than me, specialize in what they've done and done it a few times. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think equally looking at employee engagement and looking at our culture is where I spend a lot of my time. Because if you can scale and embrace change in a high growth environment and avoid toxicity and avoid, uh, you know, a, uh, you know uh, people having a low morale, that's the part that you kind of have to evoke, you know, how are we incentivizing? How are we rewarding? How are we adapting? And, you know, you're doing all this knowing that everybody hates change, but you're trying to encourage them, embrace strength, embrace change, and here's what's in it for you. And that change ROI, I think, is what I spend most of my time on. Oh, that's interesting. It's, I know you've got kids. Is it, is it similar to kids where if, the, if one kid recruits the other one to be in a bad mood, your house sucks. And yeah. if both kids say, hey, let's do our homework together and get it done, you go, oh, that was easy. I just had to make grilled cheese sandwiches and watch them do it themselves. Oh, there, there's so many analogies to raising kids and raising a company, which is why so many people call a company your baby, right? You know, they, because it is something that you're nurturing and, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of patience. Yeah, yeah. Is patience a good thing for you or no? Or is that, is that a strong suit or is that a... It is. I'm, I'm a, you know, a very patient person uh, that isn't, you know, uh, make a lot of emotional decisions. I like a lot of data and, but I'm very decisive. So I think like combining those attributes is what I've realized, right? I didn't know, but has helped me, uh, you know, kind of evoke leadership. 
uh, that, you know, uh, empowers people to go, hey, I, I want to actually buy into that plan, drink the Kool-Aid and execute what he's what he's asking us to do. That's, that's an interesting combo, the, the patience with decisiveness, because I would think patience in excess would look like passive, like you yeah. never decide anything. But the, the two, it's a nice combo. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the paralysis by analysis people, I mean, sometimes I'm like, just make a decision. Right. You know, yeah. like when, if it's the wrong one, we'll know really yeah. fast. Don't worry. And, and, then, and then there's the other side where people are like, uh, you know, oh my God, I'm going to make this decision. I've got this email three seconds ago. I'm like, you know, hold on a second. You know, like there's, there, go and do a little fact finding before you make uh, snap judgment calls. Right. Right. Well, uh, obviously you've, You've been been at it for twelve years, and you got you went you've gone from yourself to five hundred people. Was there a was there a specific point at which the scaling real you know the, the in business school terms where you know you got the hockey stick or the the inflection point? Was there an episode, or was there a specific contract, or a technology, or a capability in house where you said, "Now we can really go fat much faster." Was it, was there an event like that? Yeah. Um, there was one year that we went from 13 million in revenue top line to 32. Uh, oh, wow. That's probably, you know, that was about four or five years ago where uh, I think I got majority of my gray hair that I have now and, you know, uh, probably was not in a, the most pleasant mood all year because uh, it, you know, they have a saying that I'm going to steal like under, under 15, 20 million, you're an entrepreneur over 15, 20 million, you're a CEO. So suddenly, like I started thinking about those, you know, Metro rides around DC where I was halfway falling asleep doing an evening MBA program, reading Harvard business reviews and going, what did I learn when I read that, <laughs> you know, and you have to evoke that into your business strategy and go, it isn't just a little bit of being in the right place and right time. Now, art, science, and luck, I've got to figure out how I'm going to actually set a strategy and a plan to execute in order to do this. And that's people, process, and system, and technology. And I'm doing it out of nothing, right? I didn't have it. I had popsicle sticks and Band-Aids. So that was the inflection point where I said, we have to create a fundamental baseline, even if it's not perfect, uh, to get kind of solve 80% of the equation here. And then that way I could just take less time to tweak the other 20% uh, over a period of years. So that, that was definitely, uh, I always tell people that was the hardest year we've had so far. I'm, I'm curious with that, with that event or that episode, how much did the company growth scale you per se, as opposed to you were out in front scaling and leading the, it's, I don't say one's right or wrong, but um, were you forced into, if you will, scaling your own role? Or did you see yeah. it a little and say, I better get the heck out of, out of the way or get in front of this or I'm going to get run over? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I had run another company before this and got to about 15 million. Okay. So to do this scale... Uh, I had never done it before. And so, you know, going to the other executives in the company going, do we need to bring in another CEO? I mean, I said that. It's, it's interesting then, because you, you've 
put the line of delineation at 15 or 20, you're an entrepreneur. And if you got there once, but never got to 30 or 40, you go, oh, okay, this is new territory for me. New territory. I can go out. I'm a student, always continuous learner. I, I can go out and meet 30 people who've built companies bigger than mine, take notes, uh, take business seminars and all of these things. But do I have the attributes and skill set to take it to the next level? Uh, I think you have to constantly do a gut check, look yourself in the mirror and think about that. And it's tough because, uh, you know, a lot of t at the same time, you're finally going, man, I'm finally making some money here. And it's easy to like start, you know, saying, hey, I'm successful. And that's hubris starts to creep in. <laughs> yeah. So, wait, maybe I should just, you know, just take it easy, you know, look at all the success. So, you, you really got to be motivated and find what your motivating factors are if you're going to take it to that next level because it, it is undertaking uh, a bigger challenge. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, how much uh, risk, not seeking, but it might be that, how much risk tolerance were you willing to take at that pivot point um, to make that move? Because I... I I could see the temptation to just say, look, our margins are good. Our customers like us. Why don't we grow incrementally and take it easy? Not, why, why, would we, uh, why, why would we bet the farm to double? Uh, how, much, how much risk tolerance or risk appetite or how much risk aversion might've been just the opposite. might've been counterintuitive where you say, I had to eliminate all the risks to be able to double. I think, uh, I think I've, on the risk scale, I've been told I'm a pretty, uh, I'm, I'm open to taking risks. Mm -hmm. I think yep. that I hedge risk, um, once again, through data a lot of times, but I'm open to it and probably more aggressive than a lot of my peers. Uh, and I think that uh, that's a double-edged sword, you know, yeah. things may or may not work, uh, but uh, you know, going back to that principle of not being motivated by the financial equation, uh, I think allows me to say, you know what, I, I'm really willing to recapitalize and reinvest in the company and see if this will work, knowing that I've already achieved a moderate level of success and, you know, but I want to go for the next tier. So I definitely think that uh, I, I've taken on that approach uh, probably more aggressively than uh, I should have honestly, because I probably didn't look out for myself enough in doing so, but uh, fortunate to sit, sit here and say that it's paid off for me. It's, it's interesting. Did you consider it at the time to just be a bet on yourself or, or you're taking a risk on yourself or was it taking a risk on the market or, or what was it? Where were you, where were you placing the bet, if you would? Yeah, so I, it's actually what you just said. The first thing it's betting on yourself. I, I started, I wasn't looking at, I was on boards of other companies. I was boards on nonprofits. I was investments in business ventures and real estate and securities. And I suddenly said, I'm going to cut out all that noise and spend actually probably double or triple the amount of time in my own company where I have more of a span of control that I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's where I want to place my bets. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting because there's there's the model of, well, take Elon Musk where he margins Tesla 
to take a flyer on Twitter and screws the Tesla stockholders because then he has to sell. I guess you think, okay, is that? Uh, uh, it's almost myopic because the only guy he seems to care about in that mode is him. Uh, and that's not how you played. You were playing it for the entity of which you were leading. Yeah. Got it. For sure. Got it. Huh. Yeah, that's... Um, I'm fascinated with risk tolerance or risk aversion because there is no right answer on that. If, if you need to be risk tolerant and you're risk averse, you're hurting it. If you need to be risk averse and you're being, if you're doing, you're doing the opposite, either way, it's, it's you got to have the right amount. And it, it feels it, like you have to be willing to go all in at some point. You it's also not about uh, individual, right? Like, now that we are a large business, I have a quality and risk team that has an enterprise risk uh, system tied to different factors that you measure and mitigate. And so the checks and balances are so much more significant. So you, you've, you've been like your ability to take risks have been taken away from you somewhat. Once uh, so you, they're monitored now. Yeah, once you get to a certain scale. So yeah. it, it really changes as you scale and in, in what kind of risks you could take. That's that's funny because even the board can't control Elon. He just does whatever. He's a he's a wild, uh, loose cannon. Yeah. And it's it's benefited him at some point. I, I'm constantly fascinated with when will it all implode? Because it seems like it's all... Uh, each company is interconnected with another one in its risk. And I'm going, if one goes, is, is it going to be domino? But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the thing that I look at is his ability to take on projects that nobody wants to do, but everybody talks about, right? Whether it's, the, you know, whether it's his, um, you know, trains or, you know, looking at, uh, you know, different things like, uh, you know, look at like, like Mark Cuban and what he's doing in the pharmaceutical industry right now. And I think, I think there, some of these are passion projects and some of them are, uh, identifying gaps and saying, you know, I've got the, the money. I'm going to see if I can go out there and be an early, you know, be an early entrance to seeing how he can do this. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I could see it in the government when, when they talk about, you know, space and when they're talking about different things. It's not very uncommon for Elon's name to come up. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's very common, and and because he is seen as a trailblazer in that sense. Right. Yeah, he's he's willing to move things in a way that other people aren't. Right. Or with good measure or without. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of it's. Um, it, it, but, but, uh, but interesting what you said about Twitter because it really, I, I think one of the most interesting things, right, being in DC. And watching, uh, you know, uh, not a very beloved owner here, and and the commander's owner here in a local area, but it, it's it's. I think there is a interest interest to control communication, and I think that's really where it stems from. You know, because yeah. communi communication is power, and it's got it is such an impact on people. Yeah, I I look at the New York Times. Yeah, New York Times the same way. It's been owned by the same family for like six generations. There's a lot of power in owning the megaphone. Yeah, and, and if I could equate it back to scaling, that was one of the hardest things for us is how do you go from, you know, a small corporate team 
and three states to 22 states. And then now you're in a pandemic and you go virtual. And it was communication, uh, you know, introducing tools like Slack and look, using Teams and all this stuff. That's how we conquered a lot of the challenges was, uh, was uh, really investing our time in communication. Yeah. How much of that was conquering? How much was surviving? Like hard scrabble surviving? We, I think we were fortunate, you know, a lot of our government customers let, you know, our folks work remotely. Uh, we weren't shut down significantly, but uh, I think the impact on our talent, that was probably the hardest part, you know. The uh, internal impact. Yeah, you know, employees, just, um, you know, the mental wellness and, you know, looking at uh, culture degradation and not seeing each other in person, uh, looking at performance, how do you manage someone virtually? I think that was the, those are the challenges that we really spent a lot of time on and, and you know, we're, we're continuing to do it, but I think we started early uh, and I think that's helped us kind of uh, beat the market so far. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I, I, I despise the uh, rags to riches stories that make it sound like it was easy. And you hear them a lot in the press and they sell. Uh, I'm more interested in the pitfalls or the mistake that almost crushed you and still you're standing. Was there a, a particular... Um, huge lesson with big tuition that you could share on your road? Because um, I've, I've never found a company that just said, yeah, we just started it. We just grew year over year this way. Uh, and we were, we did everything right. It's like, I've never met that company. What's the, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? And, and what was the t tuition you had to pay? Um, you know, a lot it? of people say, um, you know, when you're growing as a small business, uh, the people who get you to a certain inflection point may not be the same people who get you to the next inflection point. Very common. Yeah, very common skill sets, experience levels. But, um, you know, and here I am as a CEO saying, well, I can, I can figure it out, you know, but I'm telling other people, but I don't know if you can. And, you know, so, you know, so you have to think of, of that too. But, um, I think there's a tendency a lot of times to be uh, give people equity in your company, make them in this, add them to the C-suite and, um, uh, you know, really uh, have a lot of dependency on key individuals. And I think that was my big tuition where I, I think that there were cases where I may have done something like that, where I had a rock star and I probably, you know, invested in them, but I think that lesson learned has helped me so much uh, as they've departed the company because now uh, I always kind of say there is no one individual that makes our company. Uh, through governance, policy, process, we can plug in people and their talent levels and we promote a uh, sense of collaboration and teamwork and because we're all links in the chain. And I think that when you're you know small, you know, you got, you've got a hero who can take on like seven jobs. Uh, but that just does not, that's not going to equate to a company of our size. And it just doesn't fit in, uh, much less is probably toxic for a culture. And so I think that's the, that was one of the biggest lessons is, 
is, is realizing that, which is counterintuitive because it's you have to rip, it, rip apart your game plan and say, I, oh, well, this worked, but I'm going to rip apart the game plan and come up with a new game plan. So is, what, did it equate to taking a model that was good and risking it or tearing apart to be great or better? Absolutely. Uh, okay. I love this phrase somebody told me one time. Uh, you're creating, a draw, doing strategy in a small business is drawing lines, uh, lines in the sand because the tide wipes it out every day <laughs> because, you know, it's just one new contract or one situation and you go, well, I guess we're doing more work in this type of work area, you know, and, you know, swim lane or, oh, I guess this customer is now a key customer of ours. So you have to kind of- Or they're, a former, or they're a former customer of ours, now what do we do? Yeah, so the, the adaptability, agility, being able to pivot, uh, I think I think are huge, and and so uh, once again goes back to hey, can you embrace change in a growth environment because you're going to have to. So, uh, was there a point like maybe it was a revenue point or a, or a headcount point where you noticed that the leaders you had bet on or thought were rock stars started um, coming apart a little bit at the seams, like their skill set wasn't you couldn't grow them to another 250 people in their head count or another 25 million in revenue, they weren't, they just weren't capable? It's a really good question because in going and trying to learn what to do, I thought it was a, uh, you know, a inflection point or a key milestone and I was wrong. Uh, you know, I think of, I personally break up small business, zero to 2 million, two to 5 million, five to 15, and 15 to 50 and 50 to 250 yeah. and in million in top line revenue. And uh, I think you actually need different people at every single one of those stages. And so, you know, uh, I'll have people come in and, you know, maybe they can get to the next stage. Maybe they've done it before. So they can, um, do, two, they can do two stages maybe. Right. Or maybe they're like, you know what? hire someone above me and I want to go to move to a deputy or people say move to me to a different role in the organization. And, but you know, uh, we have different regimes, uh, like let's say HR, we don't even call it HR now. It's called people and culture, you know? So it, I think that the amount of change going on, whether it's accounting and finance, your sales teams, your, you know, marketing teams, uh, I never anticipated it could change so much, but your needs uh, through those different milestones uh, are changed so drastically tied to scaling. You know, yeah. you got to have people who have not just execution capabilities, they have managerial capabilities and they have leadership capabilities. And then you start to get into the battle of talent. And so you have to constantly evaluate performance and say, you know, and, and honestly, it isn't like I go in, and say, hey, this isn't working. I'll sit down with an individual and say, well, we know what we need to do. And, and you know, more than half the time, they're like, yeah, I, I need some help, <laughs> you know, is what right. I get a lot of times. Right. Because they know, they finally know they're over their head. They're like, we, we've outgrown my capability. Got so it. And how do you then care for them? And I don't mean care for them, like, give them corporate welfare, but do you, is it an agreement that you say, 
Maybe we reassign you at a role that you can take. Maybe you work your way out of the organization. Maybe we hire above you and you learn from the person, the new person. How do you, how do you go about that? Because I can't imagine you just cast people off all the time. As fast as you're growing, you'd be casting off people all the time. I think it's uh, different categories. I think some people we, we have had to lay off, you know, to be candid. Uh, I think there are some people who resign and they say, you know, I, I need to go somewhere else. Because they, they knew it was time to go. They knew it was time to go. Um, I think uh, one of my favorite things is people switch to a different role. And they look at the skill sets and the gaps in the company and their career path. And they, they say, I'd like to actually take on that role because I know I can do it. Um, because new roles open up all the time as you scale. And so if you could have internal talent being promoted into those roles or making lateral moves, that's fantastic. Um, and then like, cause you like the employee and their skill set, they probably just kind of hit the upper limit. Exactly. Um, and then I think like, uh, I think the other thing is the incentivized part is you have to look at things like executive comp plans, leadership bonus plans. Uh, I think you have to look at, you know, option incentive pools. I think you have to start looking at as many employee perk programs, uh, early and often, and I get it as you go from small to large, you actually have to peel back just from a financial equation. Mm-hmm. But I think we, t- we did it that way in an inverted manner where we were very generous uh, really early. And then practically we had to pull back tight to scale. Pull all back. Yeah, you gave but, way too much. Yeah, yeah but, but we've always shown for 12 and a half years that we will have these programs in place uh, where a lot of our peers don't, they may only have half as many programs in place and, and we keep everything documented and consistent. And that, I think that, that shows that transparency and, and trust, because that is the biggest thing you'd have to figure out is how you build trust with your employee. Yeah, that's interesting. So if the board came to you tomorrow and said, Naveen, we want to go to, we want to go to 250 or we want to go to a billion. We don't, we don't think we can't take the risk of you doing that because you haven't done that before, but we'd like to keep you. Is there a perfect role where you would go internally and help to recruit the new CEO? Or would you need to just leave with your equity and say, I hope you guys do a great job because I've got, I got double digits uh, equity in this company. So please don't screw it up. How, how would that work if the, because there's a point at which maybe your ability to scale as a CEO is just going to not be enough. Uh, if the board came to you and asked you, what, what would what would your take on that be? You know, I, th- I think that's a personal question tied to being not a CEO, but an owner where you have to, you know, they say, what is your number? And, you know, tied to age and, you know, your equation of happiness and, your, you know, where does that rest in your financial coffers? Uh, there's so many opportunities now. There's private equity and so much dry powder on the table now. And then there's uh, moving to the board and, or moving to a different role. But, uh, you know, I kind of look at all of these factors tied to, do I even have the capability and skill set to do it? And uh, I'm very practical and, and I kind of like, kind of s- smile and j- like make it, well, my kids are 13 and 11 and I'm not bored yet. So <laughs> I was like, what else am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I got, I got another five or seven years to, until my kids go to college to have some fun and, and break some eggs and, you know, do the role. And if, 
we've got to bring in another CEO or other people to do it and help compliment me. I'm happy to get out of the way to do that. You yeah, know, that's, makes sense. it's it's actually a generous approach because a lot of CEOs think that the company would just collapse, not collapse, but would be untenable without them. How much but, of the... But, but, but John, that's one of the items of scaling. Uh, I've taken a lot of measures to make sure, going back to my equation about an individual, that I am not the most critical person to this company. In fact, I tell everybody that. I go, I work for everybody else. Right. You know, And so by hiring people, giving them autonomy, creating an idea factory, I, I've essentially taken away that there is one critical person, including the CEO, that's going to be impactful. Because I knew that, that like you can't scale that way. If, if, and, and, and honestly, uh, you know, that would be very difficult and stressful to manage if you have to be at one everywhere at one time. Right. And, right. And, and then that just throws off your whole work life equation. We, we call it a CEE and chief executive, everything. You go, yeah, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just going to sit in on the marketing team and you go, why? <laughs> yeah. Why are you, if you have a marketing director, why are you sitting in on the marketing team? Well, they're struggling. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Then, then you talk to your marketing person or hire a new, <laughs> hire a new person. But I'm curious um, how much of the, what I'll call the embryonic fluid, and it's mostly cultural, would walk out if the board said, it's time for us to, to bring in a, somebody that can bring us to a billion dollars and you, you stepped out. How much, how much of the, the DNA, you know, I think of um, my earliest contracts were with Microsoft and it was right after Gates left. And it was so obvious that the DNA of the company had walked out because Paul Allen was gone. And when he left, they completely underestimated that. They didn't drive any of it into the organization and it walked out and they struggled for a decade. Uh, how much of it, how much of Reva's, um, I call it the embryonic fluid. It's really what, what it was birthed out of would walk out if, if they said it's, it's time for you to take an advisory role or to, to step back from day to day or just to hit the road, you're done. Um, how much of that would walk out? Yeah, I think like, um, you know, now in this whole M&A world, uh, which is really hot in the government space, uh, you know, tied to assessing enterprise value, uh, the biggest risk is M&A integration. And I think like yes. that's where you are really from a leadership perspective on both the buy side and sell side, you've got to look at the cultural similarities and say, what will be the impact as we go through this integration? Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people say some of these are not quantifiable, but I think they are. I think you could look at certain things uh, and do some pressure testing to see Will these two organizations fit uh, that you can integrate the cultures or uh, are they too far apart that you are going to have, uh, you know, the, co the company that you're acquiring fall apart? Yeah. And, and, and I think that it's a struggle uh, for a lot of acquiring companies to figure that out in due diligence. But I think that they're getting smarter at it and better at it every day. And, um, you know, I think that's that's just something practical that people are going to have to figure out how, how they come up with some sort of, you know, you know, scoring device to say, is this really a good fit or not? It's, it's funny because a decade ago, they never, they just didn't acknowledge yeah. it all. They just said, this is such a great technical fit. Two plus two is going to equal six. And you go, 
And how is it then that 2.2 equaled one? Yeah. <laughs> this was a disaster on a cultural basis and it just never was going to work. And that was underestimated forever. It's, it's, uh, and honestly, honestly, that's why we've been winning organically and we haven't done a lot of inorganic buy side M&A because, uh, you know, we, we, we're willing to, and we've done assessment, but, you know, I look at it and think about the investment and the ROI and I'm like, I don't, I think it's going to distract us because I don't know if that culture in ours will mesh. And so that is a big reason that I haven't been as aggressive. Whereas if I was acquired by somebody, I know they would be way more aggressive than me and say, let's go, you know, add you to five other companies and take you up to a billion in three years. Right. And I'm just thinking about that integration going, I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah. That's a bit much. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, Last question. Uh, I've had a theory forever that there was a version of you in junior high that we, we, we could have seen and gone to Vegas and placed a bet and said, I think it's a sure thing, or I think it's probable, or it's a long shot that Naveen ends up in this kind of role. Who are you in seventh or eighth grade where we could have noticed that and said, yes, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and it's much, much less than most charismatic or most popular or most likely to succeed, but there was a, there was a, um, a schematic of you that we say, yeah, I would have bet on this guy. You know, like, I, I, I think two things come to mind. I think one uh, is sports. Um, I mean, for me, it wasn't just watching. I was a big, avid hockey, ice hockey fan and, and pro football fan. But what I, what I found myself uh, doing was immersing myself in the statistics and looking at the trends. I, I would have been really good in fantasy football if they had that back then. They had it then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they had like rotisserie baseball, if you remember that. But, I you do know, remember that. Yeah. But um, I love the, the, me- the statistics because it would help kind of guide me what's working, what's not. I, w- I was like, man, I would love to be like an offensive you know, head coach one day and right. do the X's and O's and look at the data of the players to see what to, where to put them. So that I think it's the you know data driven decision making um, has always fascinated me, uh, and I equate that to my company. I'm really big on metrics, but uh, the second one that comes to mind is um, is video games. Um, I wasn't one to just play video games. I'd be one to say, how do I become the best person at these video games? I didn't play the role playing games. I played the sports games, and I had to win. And if I didn't win, I would go and practice over and over and over until I could figure out how to win at these video games. So don't need to like draw this out for you, but the competitive side is so of you know with you know myself is so strong. And so I think those are two attributes that you know I didn't you know I don't I can't and when I couldn't have junior, guessed. When you were in junior high, you had to invite a buddy over to play against them. You couldn't go online and, and they could stay at their house. Oh, yeah. yeah. You had, yeah we were, to coming, we were going over to each other's houses and, uh, you know, I would be the one that, you know, would sit there and play four hours and I would say, I've got to figure out how to beat this person 29 out of 30 games. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like, let me just win six out of 10. I, John, I had to beat them 29 out of 30. And I wanted them to not play anymore. That's yeah, you wanted I, them to quit. You wanted them to go yeah, home. I wanted them to quit the game. <laughs> yeah. 
I'll never play this again. At least not yeah. with him. He's no exactly. fun. To he wins every yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> well, Naveen, we can't do a show like this without real entrepreneurs who are making real life decisions and scaling in real time. So I appreciate your appearance uh, and, and your wisdom and insights uh, to share, share about uh, Riva and, and your success, but also your, your missteps as well. So thank you for, for joining us today on Genius at Scale. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.